0: Hi everyone, and welcome to This is Growing Old, the podcast all about the common human experience of aging. My name is Katie Riley, and I'm the Vice President of Communications at the Alliance for Aging Research. Today we're going to talk about a topic that we've never approached on the show's 60 plus episodes to date, brain donation. Now many of us or our loved ones have opted to become a brain donor in the event of our death but today we're going to raise awareness about this option that is not as commonly known or utilized as a organ donation process. An estimated 50 million Americans, that's one in six of us, suffer from some kind of neurological disease or disorder. And as we age, our likelihood of being diagnosed is unfortunately increasing. Joining us to answer some of the commonly asked questions about brain donation and to debunk a few misconceptions is Tish Hebel, CEO of the Brain Donor Project. This organization is a not-for-profit created to support the neurobiobank at the National Institutes of Health, and it simplifies the process of brain donation. She's going to tell us how we can gift what she calls the most valuable thing that we have to better the health and wellness of future generations. Tish, thank you so much for joining us today. Katie, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, why don't you start by telling us how common or uncommon brain donation is and what researchers can learn from a brain, whether it be diseased or healthy? Very good question to start things off, because
1: part of the problem is it isn't common enough. You mentioned organ donation, and that's that's the biggest myth, is that most people think if they check the box to become an organ donor, that that includes the brain. I mean, it seems reasonable, Right. Not the case. So separate arrangements need to be made. And I feel like once people know that, they're like, oh, okay, well, I'll do that. How do I do it? So that's really heartening, because it's not that people have, you know, terrible objections about the whole idea. They just didn't know it's a thing, nor how to do it. So we want to make it a lot more common is the answer to your question. Um, we're fortunate in that 18,000 people have so far at least started the process through the Brain Donor Project of becoming a donor when the time comes either for themselves or a loved one. But it is such a critically needed resource. Um, those of us who work with aging populations and, and in disease communities know um, that it, it, we haven't had a good breakthrough in many of the diseases that are especially progressing with age in in way too long and neurosciences are telling us that this is the most precious resource for their studies. There's no substitute for it. We come up with all kinds of really great technologies, imaging things to help them look around. But they don't know where to point all those fancy instruments without having this tissue to help them guide the way. So, you know, they they you you mentioned diseased and healthy, and, and I'm glad you did because one of the one of the fallacies is people think that they only want diseased brains you know it's like oh i have alzheimer's i'll give up my brain for alzheimer's disease but if you think about if you think about it healthy tissue is needed in every single study for comparative science so it's mm-hmm. not just for people who are sick those of us who are fortunately at the moment anyway not can play a really important role as well
0: great so- I think this topic is just fascinating. It's not something that people talk about sitting around the dinner table. So I'm so glad that we're we're covering it today. Can you talk a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about the process? Like what happens um, yes. when a brain is donated to the National Institutes of Health? Like how is it accessed upon death? Where does it go? And what type of research is done? Sure. That's a big question a lot of people have because the logistics
1: of this are like, uh, that's that helps you determine if you're going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So first I'll start with what the individual goes through um, and then what happens, you know, after death. So the important thing is that a person would be registered before they would pass. Uh, The timetable is quick upon death. It's the same kind of timetable as organ donation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, ideally the brain is back at the brain bank stored properly well within 24 hours of death. And so because of that, it's important that all the paperwork need to be in place in advance. Registering is easy, Um, um, an interested individual can go to our website at braindonorproject.org and there's a little uh, brain pre-registration button in the upper right-hand corner. Takes you to a very brief online form. First question is, are you doing this on behalf of yourself or someone else? Um, So we address that right away. And then the next question is something to the effect of, are we in a hurry? And the rest of it is just contact information for the person filling out the form and the potential donor. And then there's room for a diagnosis at the end. Based on that information, we can determine which of the brain banks in the NIH's structure, which is called the neurobiobank, makes the most sense for that person. And then we connect them. We sort of make them shake hands and we hand off the relationship to that brain bank. Um, And Then the brain bank takes over. They provide all the information that the individual needs to share with their family and talk about it in advance um, in order for this to take place. It's not like there's a big national list like with organ donation. This is really incumbent on the family to see the person's wishes through. So um, the brain bank provides a 24-7 phone number. And uh, the most important piece of instruction is that they want to hear from the family quickly, as I mentioned, ideally within the hour. And then the brain bank, yeah, they want to, I mean, that doesn't mean everything happens that quickly, but at least want to have things moving or be notified. And so then the brain bank makes arrangements to have the body transported someplace local. Typically, these days, the recovery procedure takes place at the family's funeral home. And so um, the brain bank will have, you know, get in touch with them. The family makes two phone calls in that case if they've got something set up to the brain bank in the funeral home, shares contact information. They coordinate all this at a time when the family is not going to feel like getting in the middle of it anyway. So the body is taken there. The brain bank sends a pathologist or recovery specialist there to remove the brain through the back of the head so it's not disfiguring. An open casket is still very much an option. And then he or she ships the brain to the brain bank. Okay. At that point, the body is technically released to the family to proceed with whatever uh. Um, burial, funeral, cremation arrangements have been made. And the other important thing is everything I've just said up to that point is at no cost to the family. The NIH values this tissue so much for neuroscientists and their studies that they reimburse everybody along the way. So the family just pays for you know, whatever funeral or cremation arrangements that they would have absorbed had there been no brain donation. The other thing that's really important at this point, and this leads to where the science goes, um, if the family requests it of the brain bank, and this is a big motivator for many families, the brain bank will supply a summary of neuropathological findings. So that's basically the neuropath report, the autopsy of the brain. And it describes any diagnoses discovered in the brain, the stage of the disease, and the region or regions of the brain that were impacted by this. So you know, many of the neurodegenerative disorders, the dementias, ALS, Parkinson's, especially the dementias, they can't be definitively diagnosed until a postmortem exam is done. And so to have the the validation, the verification that the whatever, in our case, it was Lewy body's dementia with my dad, that mm-hmm. that's really what it is is such valuable information for the family. It it won't be that many generations until we know the genetic underpinnings of these disorders. And then, you know, and then beyond that, not that much longer until we can eradicate some of these diseases within families once we have the info that we need. So the brain is then assessed in many different ways, toxicology, neuropathology. Um, th- there are oftentimes when the family undergoes an interview to help validate if there are mental health diagnoses at play, but in the all of the You know, medical records release has been signed. So all that is executed upon death. And then uh, the brain is then characterized or categorized as the brain of an X year old person with X disorder or disorders. And then it is it is figuratively put on a shelf, stored, and then the data about it is entered into the neurobiobank's portal so that when a researcher goes there, and this is, I'll come back to what an amazing resource this is, but a researcher say who is you know, let's just say it's ALS, and they're looking for, and I died of ALS, and they're looking for, you know, the brain of women and men between X and X who have ALS, my information would show up, and then the researcher can request the tissue that they need from nearly 16,000 subjects that are listed in this portal. They get an answer, usually within, you know, 48 hours or so, and all they pay is shipping, so it's... Mm -hmm. Pardon me, it's just a tremendous resource for science.
0: Yeah, that is is so interesting to hear that you could, as a family member, receive information back that could potentially impact your own life. We think about organ and tissue donation and saving others' lives, and in this case, the research um, that can be gleaned from a brain. Right. And And to hear that that's incredible. It
1: is, and it probably won't be anything that can be acted upon in that person's lifetime. Mm -hmm. But, you know, generations down the road, perhaps even this own person's family
0: down the road and or strangers will benefit Mm -hmm. from the gift for sure. That's wonderful. So Tish, you've done a great job explaining how to go to your website, braindonorproject.org, and set up the fill up information, to register, to get this process going into motion and everything, are there any other things that families um, need to understand? Is there an advanced directive that needs to come into play, or does this need to be in a will or trust? That's another question uh, that I get a lot, and so I'd
1: like to try to stay ahead of it by doing some more education, but that's that's my life in in this topic anyway. attorneys will call us and say, can you give me, there has to be some boilerplate language, blah, 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 because we're working on end of life planning. There really isn't boilerplate language for two reasons. One, by the time anybody looks at the will or, or consults, you know, um, after death paperwork, it's too late. The most important thing anybody can do is register in advance and talk to your family about your wishes. Leave the phone number. We say two people, because you never know what's going to happen, two people closest to you. Make sure they understand exactly what you want to have happen. Make sure they have the phone number to notify. The, The brain banks themselves do a very good job of staying in touch with people. They usually call on an annual and make sure contact information is correct. Um, you know, and, and just double check with people that all their plans are in place. But in terms of legal documentation, there there really isn't anything. And, and the only other thing that I would mention is, you know, once. Once a person has pre-registered with us and then we hand them off to a brain bank, they sign uh, an additional set of forms that are that brain bank's registration forms. Mm -hmm. The medical records release is is part of all that. But the the paperwork itself is is not too taxing. Um, When the time comes, when the family um, has to call to notify the brain bank, there is one final consent that's given over the phone. So, you know, the technicalities of it aren't really that complicated.
0: Mm -hmm. Great.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, if
0: someone is considering this, what are the parameters? Is there an age limit? Are there geographical limitations? And how about medical conditions and lifestyle choices? Is there something that could make someone ineligible for brain donation? Yes, but not a lot. So first of all, you asked about geography.
1: The brain banks of the NIH recover from all across the U.S. They have recovered from remote Alaska and places that you think might be difficult to get to. The, the brain banks themselves each have networks of recovery specialists around the country who you know, are sort of on standby, which is why I tell people sometimes, too, another important thing to do is when you, when you feel like it's getting close, um, to give the brain bank um, a quick call and just say, "Hey, you know, I'm calling on behalf of so and so who's already registered with you. It, it looks like death may be near. You know, that's always helpful because the brain bank can then reach out and make sure they've got people in the right place. But mm-hmm. in terms of geography, no real limitations. In terms of age, no limitations. Uh, the people who pre-registered with us, you know, we could call sometimes heartbreaking as heck, but from uh, parents who anticipate um, delivering a non-viable baby and want to make sure that they can, you know, donate that very precious tissue to try to understand developmental disorders. And no matter how old a person is, um, you know, there are a lot of great studies underway about very healthy aging, you know, the super elderly they call, I'll say us because I'm approaching it. Um, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me. I got to hold a brain one time about, of a man who was over 100 years old, and his brain was larger than is typical for a person of that age. They say he was very astute up until the time he died. So there's much to be learned from people who don't have diseases. There are some issues that would render someone not being a good candidate. Uh, We can't accept brains from outside the country because it just takes too long to get them to a brain bank. There's a period of time they call PMI, which is the post-mortem interval, that must be managed well. And that's why I talked about us being in such a hurry to get the brain back where it needs to be. Um, Mm -hmm. A systemic infectious disease that could compromise the lab is an issue. So, um, you know, Lyme disease sometimes acts like that. So they worry about, you know, being able to recover a Lyme disease brain just because it acts like it's an infectious disease. At the beginning of COVID, they weren't, sure about how to recover those kinds of brains without, you know, contaminating people or places and Mm -hmm. and spreading the disease. So those are things they have to get under control. Dementia is interesting these days because, and this is really sad, but we could bring back nothing but dementia cases and not have room for anything else. Hmm. You know, it's, um, it's not a you know, it's not an inexpensive infrastructure, brain banking, and there's not um, unlimited resources. So you got to prioritize, you know, what you want. So, so researchers have defined the kinds of dementia cases that are most interesting to them. Um, and they, they usually involve a significant family history or someone who's had some preclinical testing. But there's other factors as well. So, um, but I'm trying to think. You know, we used to not accept brain cancers, but then the scientists decided, nope, we need to study the tissue around the area Mm -hmm. that's been irradiated. So that's not a factor. I'm trying to think of what other demographic or geographic questions you ask, but there's not a lot of restriction.
0: You know, most is workable and valuable. Great. How about, um, I know our audience, we have a lot of family caregivers who are caring for older loved ones who listen to the show. What if someone is hearing this and they're caring for a dementia patient or someone with Alzheimer's who has not made that, that selection for themselves upon their death? Are they able to do that for them? absolutely and that's why the first question is
1: are you doing this on behalf of yourself or someone else um you know that happened it happened with us too by the time you know my father was this is how we started this whole thing my father was um he was diagnosed with Lewy bodies dementia and he had wanted to be an anatomical body donor which um you know so we knew he would want his brain studied for neuroscience research so we made the decision on his behalf we knew it was something he would want and so You know, the family can make that decision if and so many families do call and say that, listen, he can't play a role in this decision, but we know he would not want future generations of families suffering this way. And we know that's not what we want. So, yes, we're making that decision on that person's behalf. Very doable. It helps a lot if the family's all in agreement. There are rare cases where where they aren't. And the brain banks don't want to get in the middle of any kind of, you know, controversial situation or mm-hmm. family. It's not in agreement. So it helps if if everybody's on the same page. But, yeah,
0: very definitely. Great. Thank you for sharing your story. I know that your father's death is what led you to this important work. And I think it's really admirable that you've turned, you know, a, a situation with a loved one into something that is benefiting millions of people. So Thank Congratulations you. on that, and and thank you for your important work. I know that May seventh is Brain Donor Awareness Day. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening on that day and how people can get involved? Sure. So um, I got to pick the day, so I picked my dad's birthday. So that's why it's nice. Oh, my that's wonderful. Yeah.
1: And um, you know, it's we have a, a congressional. A resolution was introduced last year, and it's being introduced again this year. So it's a multi-year resolution that had bipartisan support, which makes us very happy. There's really nothing controversial about this. It's just the fact that we need to raise awareness. So having that designation um, helps get us out there a little bit more. We don't have like a big event scheduled, although we talked about ice cream socials because my dad loves ice cream. Um, but the main thing is our advocacy partners are doing a lot digitally with us to help get the word out. We, we work with, you know, a lot of organizations that look for, um, cures and treatments for different diseases, or ways to support the people who have those diseases and their families, and, and they we provide information for them to share with their communities. And so they are are very supportive of us in this field. So it's just a it's a way to you know put a date on the calendar and says okay we're going to make extra noise here, and that's that's what we're trying to do because the, as I mentioned the problem is not enough people know. And so if I, you know, it's not like, oh, we have to work really hard to overcome objections from people who think this is weird. People don't think it's weird anymore. You know, our attitudes about death have changed so much. There was a study by the national funeral directors not long ago that I forget what the year they said it was, but it's like by the year 2030 or 2035, which is, let's face it, tomorrow, mm-hmm. 70% of Americans would be opting for cremation. So if that doesn't tell you that, you know, our parts is, are not as important to us as they maybe once were as a society. Um, I know we felt that way when when my dad passed and we donated his brain, and we were also able to donate his body. And that's that's tricky, but it can be done sometimes. And so we're having this moment of remembering him with a lot of friends and family, and there's no body. And we felt great about the fact that all his parts were being used you know, to advance science in some way.
0: Yeah, so. it's definitely a different mindset to think about. But I think once you get there and understand the benefits of it, it's it's an easy decision. Yeah. I'm with you, Katie. We find that people feel that way a lot. Wonderful. Well, now I want to pivot to our two closing questions that we ask all of our guests on This is Growing Old. Um, we like to ask first, when you were a child, what did you imagine growing older would be like? Oh, my God, that's such a great question, you know, because it's so hard to picture
1: yourself at that point. Um, First of all, I figured when I got to 39, I would stay at 39 physically, emotionally, mentally, all those things. Wouldn't that be great? Now, growing old is such a gift and not everybody gets to do it, so I didn't know how my life would turn out, but I knew I wanted to contribute, and the fact that I'm still able to, um, and in this way that I feel so passionate
0: about, makes me very happy. Wonderful. That's a great response. And then our final question that we ask all of our guests is, what do you look forward to now that you're an adult? What do you look forward to most about growing older?
1: That's another great question. You know, but my dad and I felt this, he was a very engaging man. He wanted to know people's stories. He wanted to connect with people in a way that was meaningful. And, and, it, and I kind of understand that the only thing that matters in this life is what we are to each other, what we can be to each other and for each other. And so My ability or or opportunity to do that is something I take very seriously. And as long as I can continue to do that in a meaningful way, that'll make me super happy.
0: Fantastic. Tish, thank you so much and your colleagues for the work that you're doing with the Brain Donor Project. It's such important work. Um, and thank you for joining us to share this important information. As Tish said, you can visit braindonorproject.org to learn more or pre-register to become a brain donor. Thank and you, for honey. everyone listening and watching us online, thank you for listening to This Is Growing Old. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe wherever you stream your podcasts and be sure to follow us on your favorite social media channel. Um, for more resources from the Alliance for Aging Research. Thank you.
1: Thank you.